Welcome to Myth versus Craft. Five years ago, I had the pleasure of seeing Ray Wiley Hubbard open a show for Joe Walsh. It was my first time seeing Ray perform live, and I was unprepared for him to charm the pants off the entire audience. Ray's easygoing nature and dry sense of humor made him a first-rate storyteller. Combined with his signature grit and groove, it was a thoroughly enjoyable show. He made quite an impression on me that night, and years later, I knew that he'd make an excellent guest on the show. In preparing for this episode, I had the good fortune of having access to Ray's autobiography, titled A Life Well Lived. The book is deeply entertaining, and it illustrates the compelling arc of Ray's life thus far. In between anecdotes and freeform vignettes, Ray shares remarkable insights into human nature and reveals that he is keenly introspective and profoundly grateful. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Ray, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, you're more than welcome. I'm looking forward to it. You were born in Hugo, Oklahoma, and lived there until you were eight years old. In your memoir, which I finished reading today, you describe your childhood as follows. I had a dog, a BB gun, chickens, mules, tractors, barns, woods, ponds, worms, fishing poles, cousins, firecrackers, stray cats, a storm cellar, kites, funny grandparents, and a mom and dad who adored me. Did music play much of a role in your life while you lived in Hugo? Well, growing up, you know, of course, there was uh, my grandmothers were very uh, religious. One of them was going to the Baptist church, the other was the Church of Christ. So there'd be, of course, there was gospel music, you know. And then, of course, and my granddad would always listen to, uh, you know, the country music stations, like Pete Frizzell and Hank Williams and, and all that stuff. And then, of course, my dad, who was uh, an English teacher, he would listen to these these old radio programs, you know, yours truly, Johnny Dollar and Burns and Allen and Bob Hope and all these old, uh, you know, suspense, the shadow, the whistler, you know, all those old uh, dramas on and uh, comedies on uh, radio. So, yeah, the music uh, was a big part of it, as was, uh, you know, radio uh, uh, shows, you know. So, yeah, but music was a big part of it. Did uh, either your father or your mother play any musical instruments? No, they didn't. I had an aunt who uh, played piano uh, for the Baptist church there. And so she would, on Sunday, she would play all the gospel tunes at the piano. And then all of a sudden, that Sunday, uh, we'd come back for uh, lunch at our house. And she'd get on an old piano we had there and play all these old blues, like St. Louis Woman and uh, just all these old funky old ragtime <laughs> stuff, you know, flat, fast water stuff. So, uh, but no, none of She was the only really one musical and we had any musical ability was was my aunt uh, and she uh, like I say, but no, my mother and father, nobody else really played or anything. You moved to Oak Cliff, Texas, at age eight, and I understand that at age thirteen, you joined your school choir because a girl named Shirley was also in the choir. Was this your first formal involvement with music? We weren't that formal. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty informal. But yeah, it was the first time I kind of got up there and uh, and actually kind of learned. I really, uh, I guess, my voice was changing, so I didn't really sing a lot, you know. But that was you know, first time I really kind of got involved in it, you know. Of course, when we moved to Dallas, it, uh, uh, the radio was very important, you know. Uh, KLIF, the radio station, there was playing all this rock and roll, and I was kind of, I was kind of more into the Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps, and 
more kind of the, the, the greasy rock and roll. But yeah, to answer your question, that was the first time I really kind of started to you know, try to sing. I was in the church choir because I had ulterior motives <laughs> after a while. <laughs> your friend Rick Fowler introduced you to the Kingston Trio and Bob Dylan. And later on, you discovered Woody Guthrie, Johnny Rogers, and Leadbelly. What was it about their music and lyrics that hooked you? At that time, you know, in uh, in high school, you know, I guess I was uh, 17 or 18, somewhere around in there, that the music had gotten kind of bland. Everything was kind of this, uh, it just wasn't really striking. And, of course, in the, the Beatles and Dylan came along, and it was just really something uh, very amazing. It was like music was like magical again. But then you kind of go past Dylan into Led Belly and Jimmy Rogers, and, and you find all these folk singers, uh, Paul Siebel and Eric Anderson, and there was something about the lyrics that were just so they had they had more depth and weight, I think, than what you would find on like commercial radio. You know what I mean? I mean, right. they, they, these guys were uh, the lyrics were just uh, powerful and, and strong. Like I say, had a lot of depth and weight. And I think that's kind of what really attracted me more to the folk music scene rather than you know uh, country music or rock and roll. You mentioned uh, watching the Beatles. I imagine it, it might have been for the first time on the Ed Sullivan show. I, right. I had a uh, Mike Campbell from the Heartbreakers on the show, and he had a very colorful description of of the impact, not just on him, but culturally on his friends and his high school and everything that changed after that first performance. And he described it as the world going from black and white to Technicolor. And I'm wondering if you remember what your initial impression was of the Beatles when you first came across them. Well, it was just, it, there was such a, a power there that was just, uh, that, I, that I wasn't aware of before of how powerful music was. I mean, and, and, and just, it, it was just extremely, uh, amazing. You know, of course, I've been playing, uh, folk music and everything, and it was just, it was just like so powerful to how the strength of it. And then, uh, and then of course, you know, I, I was kind of more of a folky. I was into the Dylan thing. And back, and back in those days, it was kind of, the two different camps, they really, there really wasn't folk rock, you know? There was, there was folk music and rock and roll and country and blues, and, and so everybody had their little camp. So in college, I was more into the, you know, desert boots and uh, that vibe, the Dylan vibe. And so, and then, but then, you know, when Rubber Soul hit, and all of a sudden you would, there was this incredibly, you know, the lyrics were just, you know, it, 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 it was more than just uh than, than just pop music. I mean, it, all of a sudden it was just, it was a culture. It was a, you could read the lyrics without the music and it, all of a sudden it was like poetry. Right. And so, you know, Rubber Soul was just a very, very, you know, it was the the album that kind of really brought me into that whole rock having substance. And then of course, then of course, then the folk rock hit and that was just, you know, it was really, uh, you know, I just love that. Upon graduating from high school, you moved to Red River, New Mexico with two friends and spent the summer playing music and working odd jobs. I understand that you spent the next few years alternating between spending summers in New Mexico and uh, attending college. Your memoir covers your adventures in Red River in, in great detail, and you have some incredible stories. What was your life like on the other side when you were attending college? Uh, well, it was just, uh, it, it, you know, so it was a very turbulent time in America back then. You know, there was, of course, the Vietnam War going on, and all of a sudden there was hippies coming in, and then there was... Uh, you know, Okie from Muskogee and Fight Inside of Me, and then, of course, the Civil Rights and uh, Women's Lib, and, and it was just a very turbulent, exciting time. And so my college 
uh, I kind of got into with the uh, the lefty moratorium, you know, doing moratoriums, and uh, and so my college, I I, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, the uh, I was an English major, and I really enjoyed the literature and reading and all that, and that was just uh, phenomenal. But then somewhere in there, like I say, it kind of uh, folk music really became more important than going to class. Right, right. <laughs> And, uh, but like I say, so uh, I went to uh, Arlington, uh, state for a while. Then I went up to North Texas. And of course, Michael Murphy, uh, who had gone to high school with, he was, he, he'd gone to North Texas. Then he went out to California and he came back and he was the guy too that really, uh, was, uh, very influential over me because he was, he was writing these incredibly just great songs, you know, five o'clock in the Texas morning, drunken lady. Uh, Geronimo's Cadillac Wildfire, just all these great, cool songs. And so I say that was a very, you know, college was very important as kind of a, giving me a foundation as far as, uh, you know, as, as songwriters, as, as, you know, for, as, a, as in, in folk music. After your time in New Mexico, you eventually made your way to Dallas and met the musicians with whom you would eventually form the Cowboy Twinkies. It seems like it didn't take long before you were introduced to the legendary Jerry Wexler. And shortly after you were at Muscle Shoals getting ready to record an album, you wrote in your memoir that it didn't work out because you weren't ready. What were you yet to learn? Well, um, Austin at that time, you know, Willie Nelson had moved here, Jerry Jeff had moved here, Murphy was playing here. There were all these, there was a incredible musical scene. I mean, it was going on. It was just uh, the whole progressive country cosmic cowboy thing, you know, the the long-haired hippie musician, but wearing boots and cowboy hats. And so we, we were the band, the Cowboy Twinkies. We, uh, we had made a record in Austin and it was a folk rock record. And then of course we went to, uh, uh and we got record offers. I actually got a, a record uh, offer from, uh, Frank Zappa's discreet label and, and Walner's and everybody was getting record deals. And we went with Atlantic, Jerry Wexler. He was just really, uh, Generous. In fact, when we went to New York, we uh, met him, and he gave us his tickets to uh, Springsteen's opening night at uh, the Bottom Line when Green, the day that Greens from Ackbury Park came out. So he was just very gracious. But then we went to Muscle Shows and and uh, with Bob Johnson, who had uh, just had done some brilliant stuff. But for some reason, we just really never felt comfortable in that studio uh, working with him. It was just, it was just, I really wasn't. Uh, ready to do that, you know, with, uh, I just really wasn't, felt like I was, I was, it, it just didn't work out, you know, and I have a lot of respect for Bob and of course Jerry Wexler, but it was just, uh, it, it was some decisions in, as far as the music that I just couldn't abide by. Shortly after you got another record deal, uh, and recorded, re recorded the album in Nashville, but your label butchered. The album and thought that country radio stations wouldn't play the song, so they added backing vo vocals and overdubs. You described this as a crushing experience. How did you cope with it? Uh, well, I called up my lawyer and I said, uh, "What can I do about this?" They'd put girl singers and steel guitars on every track, and I like girl singers steel guitar, but not on every track. But they were really trying to because if you listen to it now, there's two records there. There's the record we did and the record that they did to put on it to try to get country radio to play it. And so I called up my uh, friend, uh, who was kind of my, uh, who was uh, my lawyer, who helped me negotiate the contract. And I said, "What can I do?" And he says, "I suggest you start drinking." 
because there's nothing you can do. Wow. <laughs> so, so it was just kind of a thing. It really was heartbreaking. We couldn't. Uh, we had to kind of wait out that contract, and uh, it just. But we played in Texas. We still the Cowboy Twinkies. We still had a, a great following in Texas and Oklahoma. So we we still played the clubs of Austin Opera House and Rubiot and all these you know Whiskey River all these so. Uh, club so we were like working musicians but we just never could quite break into the recording part of it the music business as far as you know nashville was concerned in 78 willie nelson set up his his own label lone star records and signed several texas artists including you and you recorded an album for them and went on tour opening for willie I understand, however, that your album hadn't come out yet, so you couldn't really sell anything while you were on tour, and the audiences were slow to warm up to you. I've met, yes. I've met artists who hate opening for others, and others that relish the challenge of winning over an audience that isn't there to see you. How do you feel about it now? Would you feel comfortable opening for someone if it was the right artist? Oh, yeah. We've, in fact, I've opened uh, for everybody from uh, Joe Walsh to. You know, gosh, I, you know, uh, I can't remember who all right now, but yeah, I have, I have, it's really a lot of fun, you know, and I, like I say, I have a, I feel like right now I have a pretty good arsenal, you know, of, of songs that I can pull out and kind of, you know, feel like, say, we've opened with Joe Walsh and of course, uh, Lucinda and gosh, I, you know, so I, I enjoy the opening act thing, you know, I, like I say, it keeps me on my toes. So yeah, I, I enjoy it. I mean, I, I really do. It's a good gig, and you usually get get home early. <laughs> <laughs> Your uh, father died when you were 38, and you struggled to cope with his death. You describe this period in your life as, as follows. I was in this make-believe world I had created for myself. It was a dark kingdom where I thought of myself as a Keith Richards cool drug rocker, a Towns Van Zandt tortured songwriter, a Dylan Thomas heartbroken poet. If that was a make-believe world, what was the actual reality? I was just pretty much a blackout drunk, <laughs> playing, uh, you know, just kind of playing in, uh, oh, you know, just kind of uh, playing in, in honky tonk, doing that deal. And uh, so uh, the reality was, uh, you know, I was pretty miserable. I mean, it was just uh, kind of running with some rough people, and uh, it was dark, and, and it was... Uh, I was very, you know, uh, sad and depressed, but, uh, you know, and, and so like I say, I, I, I wasn't really writing songs at that time. I was just kind of waking up to, you know, just drink, get messed up. But in my mind, it was, you know, you, you the illusion, the denial of it, you know, could, I could see myself, you know, and, and kind of that, that mythology of, uh, you know, the heartbroken poet, the hard drinker, the, you know, the Ernest Hemingway, the Edgar Allan Poe, the Hank Williams, the George Jones thing. You know, I mean, you could, it, it's this uh, illusion, this fantasy that, that, my, that I was in, you know, that mythology at the time. And like I say, the reality was I was just, uh, you know, just kind of stumbling around. I wasn't doing much. I was just dog paddling. You know, my life was just kind of a very, you know, dark, a lot of, sadness and wasn't, wasn't happy. In 1987, Stevie Ray Vaughan had been sober for a little over a year, and he told you that when it comes to recovery, there ain't no elevators, you gotta take the steps. 
I read an interview in which you said that Stevie Ray was the first guy I knew who got sober and didn't turn into a square. How important was it to you to find someone who had gotten sober yet was still fun, creative, and playing better than ever? Well, you know, I had this kind of, this, I guess, fear or something, or whatever it was, I don't know, this uh, psycho, whatever, but, uh, you know, like if I, if I got sober, I'd end up on the 700 Club, mm-hmm. you know? And I just went, oh, man, I just, because I really valued, I think, the, the whole idea, of, you know, just like the musician being kind of the, the rebel, the, the outcast, the, that type of thing. And so, uh, you know, it was it was important to me because I just couldn't, I'd, I'd seen my friends, some of my friends end up on the 700 Club and I go, man, I just, I just can't do that. I think that's hypocritical because I, one of my guys saw on the 700 Club and the next gig he was drinking scotch with me. So, you know, so I just, it was important. But then like Stevie Ray was the first cat. We'd, we'd done, Oh, drugs together down in Austin, you know, at the old Riverside Studios. And uh, he'd been up for a while, and I'd been up for a while, and we've shared, you know, cocaine with each other. And uh, and so we kind of knew each other that. So when, I, you know, I'd heard that he had gotten, you know, sober and, and everything, and then uh, I was going through a really kind of a rough time, and if there was somebody else, uh, a girl, you know, mentioned to Stevie Ray, and, you know, and, and, and so she said, well, you want to talk to Stevie Ray about your drinking? I went, yeah, sure. And so that's how that kind of came about. It was pretty much he just kind of came in, shared his experience, strength, and hope with me of like what had happened, what what it was like now, and, and kind of got in it. And of course, uh, you know, got me into recovery. And uh, so uh, it's and you know, day doesn't go by that I'm I'm not aware of that. I'm ever grateful I am that he took the time to uh, you know to, uh, talk to me. You uh, mentioned, or you write in your book that as part of what worked for you and and sharing some advice that. Even if you don't believe in God, that praying and asking for help is helpful because God doesn't really need to hear your prayers. You need to hear yourself praying. Yeah, that was the deal. I, I was kind of a pretty—I don't think I was an atheist, but I was a pretty militant agnostic. You know, I just don't want to talk about it and everything. But then, uh, when I, you know, Stevie Ray had talked to me, said that he had had a psychic change, he had a spiritual awakening by working the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I went. Eh, Teachable, 
you know, when I was out there before doing all this stuff on just on my own, I was unteachable. You could not teach me anything about that. But for somewhere in there, I got to the point where I, I became teachable and uh, started to listen. And, um, you know, and like I say, had uh, uh, had a psychic change in order to, you know, recover from, uh, you know, all that stuff. After getting sober, you didn't think that you were a good enough guitar player to write the type of songs that you wanted to write. A friend mm-hmm. suggested that you take guitar lessons, but you were embarrassed to do so. You eventually did take the lessons and learn how to finger pick. How did this change your songwriting? Well, here here's kind of a thing too that I've that what happened by doing that by learning to finger pick, and even like today, I, I keep trying to learn new things. Like I learned to finger pick, then I learned open tunings, then I learned slide, then I got a mandolin. But by by learning to finger pick. That gave the song a door to come through that wasn't there before. You know, if I hadn't have learned the, these uh, finger-picking patterns, I, I wouldn't have written The Messenger or Dust of the Chase or uh, Without Love because those were the finger-picking patterns. If I hadn't have learned open tunings, I wouldn't have got Purgatory Road or uh, Too Young Right. Or if I hadn't have learned Slide, I wouldn't have got Three Days Straight or... Uh, you know, name dropping. So for me, even today, it, it's still trying to learn new things. But, and like I say, it, uh, it, it gives a song a, a door to come through that wasn't there before. That makes sense? Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, it's just, it's just uh, it really does. And so uh, the finger-picking thing, kind of at that time, I was 42, 40, somewhere around there, 42, and I'd kind of burned all my bridges. I kind of had a reputation just being a, you know, drinking a lot on stage and playing kind of some really bars, you know, and honky tonks. I'd kind of burned a lot of bridges. I was like, I say, I was 42 and, uh, kind of didn't, I didn't have a career, you know, I just was just kind of, like I say, dog paddling. And so by overcoming that fear of embarrassment and learning finger picking, there were these little treasures on the other side, these little songs that wouldn't have been there if I hadn't have, uh, done that your book and many of your lyrics mention guitars amplifiers musical instruments that are special to you would you say that your affection for certain instruments is primarily sonic emotional or both oh gosh uh, that's an incredible question repeat it <laughs> <laughs> give me time to think about it I, you know it, it's uh Somewhere in there, I guess I was 42, 43, and I was still playing in this place called Charlie's Airport Lounge. And it was just a, you know, a, a full tilt drinking bar open at seven in the morning. And we'd kind of alternate sets with the lingerie show. And it was just a really depressing gig, but I was sober. But like one night, I just kind of went back and I just kind of did this prayer meditation thing. And I just kind of came that I said, okay, I'm not going to compromise my writing and I'm not going to write songs to think about the future of what I'm writing. I'm just going to, I'm not going to write a song to get a publishing deal. I'm not going to write songs to get Tim McGar or Garth Brooks to cut them. I'm just going to write the songs that I feel like I should write. And so I usually write about things that I kind of know about. And I've, I've mentioned this, but uh, I'm at a really good position you know, I can't recommend this for everybody, but I sleep with the president of my record label. 
you know, <laughs> which is a Clive David. That's my wife, Judy. <laughs> so she says, you write about whatever you want to write about and make the best the record that you want to make, and I'll try to sell the damn things. So that gives me an incredible freedom for a writer to write about guitars, to write about amplifiers, to write about a song about Charlie Musselwhite, to write about a let gold top Les Paul and a stripper. So to answer your question, these guitars and that I have, they very I'm very emotional about them. I just like I've got some funky old guitars that I just I wouldn't take ten thousand dollars for this guitar I paid eight hundred dollars for. And um, I found a hundred dollar neck and I put them together and so it's just gnarly and ugly, but God I just love it to death. And I would, you know, it's, it probably has no value to anybody else but me. But to me, it, there's an emotional thing. Here's a little, little thing I do is I had a, uh, I know it sounds weird, but after I write a song, I'll sing it and then I'll sing it again and then I'll go, thanks. You know, I don't know who I'm thinking, but whoever or whatever it is, I want to acknowledge the fact. I want to, you know, for the muse or whatever, some creative spark within me, I want to acknowledge the fact that I am grateful that I've got that song. And I had a friend of mine, uh, Tony Nobles here in Wembley, he's built me a couple of guitars, a resonator, and he just built them from scratch. And after he made them for me, we went out into the woods here in Wembley and we played these guitars for the trees. And it was really strange, but really weird because he said, you need to let the universe know that these trees know that the reason this your brother Cree died is is to make this instrument. And we said, we just went out in the wood and played some blues and stuff on these resonators. And it was just, I don't know, it, it, was, it was just a neat thing to do. And so to answer your question, I'm very emotionally attached to sort of these old, these guitars I have. And what about the, uh, the sonic side of that question? Meaning, is it strictly the stories and experiences that you've had with these instruments that Clearly, the emotional bond is there, but sonically, I've read stuff you've written about an E chord without the third, and how that makes oh, you, yeah. and how that makes you feel, and how it sounds. I imagine that you own certain instruments that you play and just give you joy just by virtue of how they feel in your hands and how they sound. Oh yeah, you know I've had guitars uh, in the past that for some reason were real expensive, but. It didn't sound right. They just, you know, I'd play it. I, I never would play it, so I, I got rid of it. And and certain guitars that I have, like there's a, in my book, there's a full page photograph <laughs> of a guitar, you know. And I got I got a picture of a, I think like you know me and Jerry Jeff or me and Willie or somebody that's like a quarter page. <laughs> but I got a, I gave a whole page of his favorite old guitar that I got, this old 58 Southern Jumbo body with a, a 1949 J45 neck. This neck I found for $100 somewhere in Kentucky, I think, or Illinois. They do the sonic. They got it. It comes down to kind of what I learned from... I feel very fortunate to have worked with Gerf Morlicks and Lloyd Mays and George Reeve as producers. And uh, the, the place I do is, is you know... Tone, taste, grit, and groove. I mean, that's kind of what, that's my mantra. That's what I live by. I've got to have the, the tone. You know, if you got good tone, you can get through whatever gig it is, you know. And then taste, where you just don't play all these, look at me, look at me, look at me licks, you know. It's got to be the right taste of sometimes what not to play. And then grit, to have a little uh, have a little bite where everything's just not pablum. 
and then groove. I, I really uh, believe in the deep groove, and so those are kind of like I say. That's my mantra. That's uh, where, where I am, as, you know, as far as my songwriting and and where I am. As a sidebar, I first saw you perform uh, in Austin at Bass Concert Hall when you were playing with uh, uh, Joe Walsh and Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Oh yeah. And uh, and it was a fantastic show. And and when I started producing the show, I uh, a few episodes in, I started thinking it would be fantastic to speak with you because you, you you're such a gifted storyteller. But uh, the point I made is you you shared a story at that show about how Joe Walsh and I might be butchering it here, so correct me if I'm mistaken. But that Joe Walsh had called you after one of your albums came out, came out, and he was trying to pick your brain about specifically what guitar and amp you had used to record a specific song on your record. And to me, that ju- it just kind of it said so much about Joe and what appeared to be a love affair with with his instrument and with t- like you said the tones. And uh, and I'm wondering if that is Joe, if that's the impression the impression I got was correct. Completely, completely, completely. He just uh, out, we were out in California. We were playing at uh, McCabe's out there, and we'd done the sound check. And Rick Richards, now we're driving away. We're going to go grab that eat. All of a sudden, my cell phone rings. And I go, hello? And he goes, right, this is Joe Walsh. <laughs> I went, what? He goes, yeah, Joe Walsh. And Brett Carpenter gave me your phone number. <laughs> so went, wait, wait. Oh, so he, he said, didn't even know you at the time? No. And so he said, he said I'm in Boston at a, a baseball field playing with my band up here, the Eagles. <laughs> and he said, you got a minute? And I said, sure. He says, okay, on the song Snake Farm, I know that's a Gretsch duo jet you're playing. But what kind of amp is it, and what pedals are you using? <laughs> and I went, oh, well, I said, well, I'll tell you the truth, it's an old Bell and Howe. It's an old Bell and Howe speaker, and my friend Tony we put a Stromberg Carlson amp in it, and uh, it's just nasty and rude. And I said, I don't think we use any pedals at all except for a, an Alan Durham, Charlie Sexton sex drive pedal. And I said, that's the only pedal I use. He goes, that's it, huh? And I said, yeah, it's just a... You know, I knew it was a duo jet, but I just wasn't sure of the amp or the pedals. <laughs> and I go, oh, he said, well, I wish I could come see you tonight, but I'm up here in Boston. Thank you. <laughs> and I went, well, well, thank you. And, uh, you know, hung up and Rick said, who was that? I went, man, it's Joe Walsh or somebody that sounded like him. <laughs> and it was really weird. And then what happened was, is I guess about three or four months later, I get this other phone call. Says, Ray, this is Smokey. And I said, yeah. He said, I'm a Joe Walsh liaison, a personal assistant, take care of everything. And he said, yeah. And he said, well, Marjorie Box said that I can't come back to California till I get you and Joe together because he's been playing that Snake Farm record over and over. And the Eagles are playing in Dallas, and we want you to come up. Joe wants to have dinner with you and go to show. Wow. So I said, okay. So I drove up there, went to, uh, I can't remember, the Hotel Four Seasons or something. They had a room for me. I met Joe, and we sat down and talked, you know, guitars and amplifiers, and just, just it was just great. And then the next day, we went to uh, the concert, which is the first time I've ever been in a an SUV with a police motorcycle in front of the car, you know, which <laughs> just sail right through. And then we went to the uh, the concert and went to the sound check, and the sound check was just incredible because I've they just kind of put me there at the at the middle of the soundboard, said, you can hang here. And so it was really cool. So then we uh, went and ate with uh, Joe and the crew and his techs and all that guys. And then uh, 
went to the concert. And after the concert, Smokey came and got me and said, let's go. And then we jumped in the SUV and hauled ass back. And then uh, the next morning, they, they were leaving. And uh, so I was, went over to Joe and I said, well, here, I got something for you. He goes, what's that? And I said, well, here's the Bell and Hal amp that I used oh, on wow. Snake Farm. He goes, oh, you can't give me that. And I said, well, to tell you the truth, it's probably going to catch on fire at any, <laughs> <laughs> any moment. I said, it does smell a little bit. And I, and I said, don't leave it in the room by itself. And he goes, oh, man, I can't believe, you know. So I, so I gave him the amp. You know, it's just an old gnarly amp. I got about three of them, but that was the one I used on Snake Farm. So that was really cool. Wow. Then, let me tell you this. So about six months later, Judy's opening the mail. And uh, and so anyhow, Judy's opening the mail, and all she goes, God damn it. I go, what's the matter? She says, I got to lose 15 pounds by February. And I go, why? She says, we've been invited to Joe Walsh and Marjorie Bach's wedding. <laughs> and I said, what? And so by that time, I had Joe's number, so I called up Joe. And I said, Joe, I just got an invitation to your wedding, and and I've, I'm just honored, but I, I just kind of I, I don't understand. He said, well, I was staying in Ringo Starr's guest house. And all of a sudden, Ringo comes out. He says, Joe, in an English accent, of course, he says, I want you to come hear this record. This guy in Texas, his name's Ray Wiley Hubbard, and he's got this record I want you to hear. So Joe says, so I go in there, and, and Ringo Starr is playing me Snake Farm. <laughs> and so and about that time, Barbara Bach and her sister Marjorie walk in. And all of a sudden, I look at Marjorie, and she starts dancing, and our eyes hit contact, and lightning that went off away. And Snake Farm is our song, and we want you to be there. Wow. So uh, we flew out there. It was really cool. We went to the uh, some Edison place with everybody. Uh, Randolph uh, played, and uh, oh, it was just really cool and everything. And then we went to uh, the the Polo Lounge at the Beverly Hills Hotel and for their brunch the next day. And he kind of told the story about yeah, the Snake Farm. That's our. You know, it was really I was really flattered, and it was really cool. Then what's weird? So we went to see them when they played Austin City Limits. So they run everybody off backstage except me. I'm sitting there with Marjorie and Joe and Irving Azoff as though they're talking to somebody. So anyhow, Joe, I said, this is a pretty good festival, Austin City Limits. He goes, have you ever played it? And I said, no, I've never played it. I said, I do my own festival. It's called Grit and Groove. He goes, really? And I said, yeah. I said, I just have friends of mine play like, I, you know, Chris Robinson's played at the last two gigs. I got Tony Joe White. I got Teeny Hodges. And all of a sudden, Marjorie says, Flips Irving Azoff. She goes, when is it? And I said, it's April. And so she flips, you know, taps Irving Azoff on the shoulder and goes, Irving, what's what's the band doing on April? And Irving says, looks at his calendar on his phone and goes, nothing. She goes, well, Joe, play your festival. And I went, I said, I can't afford you. And so Joe said, well, just, you know, cover my expenses and we'll come down and play it. Get me a band together. Get me that Snake Farm band. <laughs> so anyhow, I got Joe Walsh playing. Rick Richards and George Reeve on bass, and then Gurf Morlicks on guitar, got Bucka Allen on keyboards, and then I got the Trishas as his backup singers. So he came in to Austin, rehearsed for three days at this at Boone Studio, and then we came out and did Grit and Groove, and uh, oh man, it was just, it was cool. 
of course, Tony Joe and T.D. Hodges were great, too. And then and then a little while later, I get this call. Joe called me and says, Ray, I said, yeah. I said, I don't want to steal your band, but I'd sure like to steal your rhythm section for about a year. <laughs> so he said, yeah, I'd about like George Reeve and Buck Allen and Rick Richards to, to play with me. Is that cool with you? And I said, of course. So uh, Rick and George and Bucka went out with Joe for, I guess, about a year. I guess it was about two or three years ago. And then uh, he uh, flew me out to see him when they played the Troubadour, and it was really cool, man. So, uh, in fact, we're going to see him in May uh, down in Houston. Wow. He's doing, the, he's doing that show with Bad Company. They're kind of alternating stuff, so we're going to go down and see him then. Wow, that's fantastic. But yeah, to answer, I'm sorry I went on a roll there, but... But he's, he is such a tone guy. When we did Grit and Groove, he had my friend Tony Nobles as his guitar tech. And he flew, well, he, the biggest expense I had, you know, it was getting his gear here. He said, I said, I can get you a guitar and some amps and everything. He goes, no, I need to sound like I, I sound. I would disappoint the people if I don't sound like Joe Walsh. So he, you know, shipped, I think, six guitars and two amps here and everything but god they rehearsed and it sounded great man it was just so cool to see george reeve up there playing the bass lick on uh fast lane <laughs> but yeah to answer your question he, he is a tone guy he just really you know loves that you've performed everywhere from birthday parties to the texas redneck games to david letterman i've seen you perform <laughs> And either you really enjoy it or you're great at making it look that way. How does performing live make you feel? Oh, it, it's still a joy. It really is a joy. And now, you know, I've got my son playing guitar with me, which is uh, just great because he's, uh, he's on the straight and narrow and he's just doing great. And then Rick, when he got back, while he was gone that year, I got a young fellow named Kyle Snyder playing drums with me. And then Rick came back and... Rick said, man, you know, he said, I got a chance to go with, oh, gosh, who'd he go with? Commander Cody, Bill Kirchin. So he said, I got a good gig with Bill Kirchin, so you just stay with Kyle. You know, so it's really fun with me. Like last night, I did a private party, you know, thing, which I don't do a lot of those because, you know, I'm not really a party band. But it was a lot of fun. We got up there and the people listened. And uh, and it it is still a joy. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I like that. It's kind of like, of course, somewhere in the book I talk about, I wasn't going to write these songs to see what I could get. I was going to see what I could contribute. And so by being on stage, I look out there and, I, you know, I got some goofy stories that I tell them between songs. But I see people smile and people who sing along and whether it's they dance or, or whatever, that that's important to me. So to answer your question, yeah, it's still fun. It's still a joy, you know. We've had a you know few you know rough gigs like the Texas Redneck Games was kind of crazy, but but we played. I mean, I had Scrappy Judd and you know Darren Hess and George Reef up there playing with me. So you know, like I say, if you got good tone, you can get through the gig. You can get through any gig. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> because no matter what's out there, as long as you sound good on stage, you know, then that's what's that's important. So to answer your question, man, I, I, it's still a joy for me. Is there a particular kind of gig that you enjoy the most, be it the type or, or size of venue, the number of people in the crowd, their enthusiasm? What are the ingredients to the perfect gig? Well, let's see. Uh, hmm. The thing, you know, I want you, you want to go there and make sure everything works and sounds good. You know, that's the thing. And, and so, uh, 
you know, in our rider, we make sure that, that our sound system is, is, you know, top notch where it's good. So we will make sure we got a good sound system. And, uh, I feel very fortunate now. Like I say, we're kind of playing places like theaters. Like we just played up in Wisconsin at a, at a, at a, uh, uh, opera house and it was like 450 people and it was sold out, which was wow, which is amazing that and we're playing little, you know, clubs, 250, 300. And then, uh, so I don't know. The perfect gig for me is, uh, I don't know. I think it's been doing it for so long that no matter what the gig, I can make it. If not perfect, I can make it really, really, really good. You know, right. As long as I've got a good sound system and everything that, and it, and it sounds right, then I can take and make it, make it good. You mentioned your son, Lucas, who I believe is probably about 21 now. And I say that because I think he was 17 when, when I saw you at Bass Concert Hall. He was already playing with you. Yeah. Have you found the right balance between showing him the ropes and letting him find his own path and make his own mistakes? Uh, yes, I have because uh, he went up to Colorado for took a year off, went up there snowboarding, and he hurt his back real bad. And then he came back and, uh, you know, kind of got into opiates pain pills for a while but now he's came off that and he's doing really well and he's working uh helping other people he's living in Kerrville he's learning recording and he's really getting out there working uh with, with young people and like in, in recovery and stuff and so trying to be helpful and so you know he's he's learned a lot and I'll tell you what I've learned a lot from him too because he's got me you know back into doing what I'm supposed to be doing but, you know, on the road, he's a good hang, you know, and uh, I asked him one time, I said, do you like playing music with me? And he said, yeah. And then I said, well, how come I have to pay you then? <laughs> he said, well, he said, I'll play the music for free, but you got to pay me to ride in a van with you and a bunch of old guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, and he's got a good sense of humor. Like I say, his head's on really straight now, and I'm really proud of him. And he's really turning into a little monster on the guitar he's doing. And he's listening to the right guitar players, I think. He's listening to guys like Buddy Miller and, and Derek O'Brien and Gurf Morlix and, you know, those, the ones that, you know, play the cool licks, you know I mean? Like, I look at some of the stuff that he's listening to, Delaney and Bonnie, you know I mean? who I, And I didn't turn him on to it. You know, I have no idea how he found Delaney and Bonnie, but, uh, you know, he's, he's got that. He's listening to Taj Mahal and I'm going, and I never, and I never even mentioned those to him, you know? So he's, he's, I think his mindset as a guitar player is on the right track, that he's not just doing a lot of these, he's not showing off. He's just, in fact, I'll tell you a real quick story. Uh, Will went for Willie, I guess, when Lucas was about 16 or so. We played out there, and Mickey Raphael came over to Lucas after we did our set. He said, Lucas, I really enjoyed your playing. And Lucas said, thank you. And Mickey said, I'm going to tell you something that Grady Martin, who used to play with Willie, told me 40 years ago. And Lucas said, what's that? And he said, don't play while the singer's singing. <laughs> he said, He said they don't like that. You know, and he, he said, that's how I've kept my job with Willie Nelson for 30 years, <laughs> is I don't play while he's singing. And so he said, I think Lucas remembers that, you know, that he just, he plays really good feels and good rhythms. So to answer your question, I'm, I'm very, very proud of him. I ask most of my guests about songwriting. Uh, you're the first guest, I think, that has actually put it all into a formula. It won't make much sense when I'm saying it out loud, but in writing it makes a lot of sense. It's inspiration plus purpose plus craft times time and effort minus fear and doubt equals 
prosperous songwriter. I'd like to touch on doubt and purpose for a moment. In describing doubt, you wrote that you like the kind of songwriter who doesn't think about the future of what they write. You also wrote that there is no definitive proof that a song is good or bad. Do you think it's important to just write and to write often and to complete songs, even if you're feeling unsure, and eventually, A, you'll get better at it, and B, you might discover that some of the songs you weren't sure about turned out much better than you expected? Yes, yes, you're completely right. The thing about doubt, you know, I think any creative person, you, you can have these doubts. Like all of a sudden you write a song and you go, all of a sudden your mind will go, well, that's, that's not any good. Well, the thing is, where's the proof? There is no proof that this song isn't any good. I mean, listen to the crap that's on the radio nowadays. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's really no proof that this song isn't any good at that point while you're writing it. So don't doubt what you're writing. You know, it's, it's, it's like I think I mentioned there the, the quote from Flannery O'Connor, never second guess inspiration, but it is okay to rewrite. You know, and, and, and not to edit whenever you get the inspiration. You just write and then go back and edit. But to answer your question, the doubt thing is like, well, you know, like, well, I'm not good enough. I, you know, I, I don't know if the people, you know, it just, those are just little nibbles that you just, you don't listen to it. You the fear and doubt, you move your fear and doubt and it's, and it's unlimited what you can do. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty good example of that. You know, I mean, at 41, I was just, pretty much dead in the water. You know, I didn't have a career. And uh, now, I'm, you know, I can say I'm, I'm writing songs and being able to travel around and play them, which prospers. It really doesn't mean I have a Mercedes in my driveway, but it means I'm able to pay my bills and, and write songs that, that I want to write. But the doubt, you know, fear and doubt was, I have, you have to look at it. Sometimes you have to be conscious of it. Like, I don't need to be, I don't need to think like that. I don't need to doubt this. I just need to, write this song and make it the best I can. Because for a long period of time, you know, doubt will, you know, can, will limit you. If you move your fear and doubt, it's unlimited. You know, you have nothing standing there. I really like your take on the meaning of purpose. And you wrote that the purpose of the universe is to contribute to life. And you can't go wrong if you make it your purpose to also contribute to life. How did you come to this realization? How did you come to think this way? Well, it, it's kind of like co-creating your life with the creative, hopefully a divine creative spark within you. It, it's like, it's kind of a thing that if, I mean, you look at the history of the deal from a man being a, either a fish or whatever, or was created in six, it doesn't matter. The purpose of the universe is to strengthen and ennoble man. Man has come up and really become from this Neanderthal type person to where we are today. The universe is, has done that somehow and uh, it's contributed to life. And so if you make that your purpose, you're in line, you know, running parallel with the universe. And, and so I don't know, it's just kind of a, you know, I read a lot of mythology, you know, Joseph Campbell stuff. And I just kind of got the idea of the whole cosmic shebang. And, um, you know, I'm being conscious of, uh, trying to contribute and that's what the universe does, then you're in cahoots with the universe. And so, you know, if you have a noble purpose, that's, you know, and you can have any purpose. I mean, if your purpose is to write songs and make a bunch of money and get girls and whatever, that's okay. But if you have a noble purpose, then you're 
for me, I'm, I'm at more at ease with myself rather than just when I'm writing songs to see what I can get, you know. Uh, the other quote in there somewhere is, uh, the tragedy is not attaining your goal. The tragedy is not having a goal to attain. You know, I mentioned the term dog paddling. I mean, for a long period of time, I just dog paddled until I actually kind of I got serious and said, okay, this I want to be a prosperous songwriter in order to do what I love and, and pay my bills. And yeah, you know, like I said, I don't have a Mercedes in my driveway, but I'm really, really grateful where I am today. You also mention in the book a couple of times that it can be frustrating to see, and I quote, young dudes who have tour buses, guitar techs, and roadies all making a bunch of money and getting played all over the radio. Their success is one thing, but the real pisser for me is that they think they're good songwriters. They're not. Does this still bother you every now and then? Uh, uh, no, not really. I mean, it's... uh. Uh, you know, I've, I've I've come to you know acceptance doesn't mean approval. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I, I accept I accept the fact that that's the way it is. I don't really approve of it because I see guys like James McMurtry and Slade Cleaves, you know, and Gurf Boyx and Sam Baker and you know Kevin Welch. Man, just these guys—they're these songwriters. You know, if you if you cut the words, they bleed. That's how good they are. That's how powerful and just wonderful. You know, and you see McMurtry just slugging his own amp upstairs at the Continental Club, you know? And then, you know, and all of a sudden you go, that's the injustice of it. You know, you see a bunch of these guys just, you know, they're, they're more guitar holders than songwriters, you know? And I can say that because I know real songwriters, you know? I've, you know, we had T.D. Hodges at, at my show, and the, but somebody came up and says, why is that? The little black man singing all these Al Green songs. I go, cause he wrote them, <laughs> you know. <laughs> he he wrote those, and so you know, and a lot of people that there didn't really know him, but I did, and Chris Robinson did. Man, we just sat there in awe watching this kid. I mean, watching this old guy do it. All the kids didn't really know, but all of a sudden he'd sing these songs. It was so cool. But you know, I've 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 feel fortunate to have seen. Lightning Hopkins and Freddie King and Ernest Tubb and, and Gary Stewart. I saw those guys and, uh, they were, you know, phenomenal. And then, uh, so a lot of these young guys, I have to compare them to that, you know, and they're, and they're not there yet. I mean, there's some really young kids. Uh, this young kid, Aaron Lee Tashin, I really love him. I think he's kind of got a Steve Goodman vibe to him. I think he's wonderful. And young kid, Jonathan Tyler, he's just, old school 60s you know rock and roll writer but you know there's a lot of the you know the ones you see i guess you know kind of that bro country thing where they're you know guitar holders and just kind of dance around that they really aren't songwriters you know and i'm okay with that you know but when they try to pass themselves off as songwriters when you go to one of these sites and all of a sudden they you know they mention Waylon or johnny cash you go hey they have no idea that johnny wrote I still miss someone, you know. So I put I put a little little dig in there. I figured those guys wouldn't read it anyway. <laughs> right, I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed the, your book, and oh, I can't I can't man. recommend it enough. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. Well, you're more than welcome, and, and you've got the number here, so uh, you're on the permanent guest list. So if you, if you see I'm playing around and you want to come to the show, just. 
give me a call. I'm very much looking forward to uh, to seeing you live again. Ray, thank you so much. You bet. Take care. <laughs>